My name is Will Swisher, and this podcast is being uploaded to the World Ethnography Project for Anth 212. In her ethnography, Paradise and Ashes, Beatrice Manns perfectly encapsulates the reality of living as a commoner in wartime. This book was published in 2004 by University of California Press. Beatrice Manns is a professor of cultural anthropology at UC Berkeley, and her education focuses on Guatemala and Latin America. She was also the chair of the Berkeley Latin America Studies program from 1993 to 1998. Through interviews and accounts of Guatemala's rich history, Manns brings the reader into a tragic story from the recent past that showcases humanity's brutality as well as our ability to come together during times of struggle. The research question that I've decided on for this project is, how do communities survive and rebuild during and after conflict? Paradise and Ashes tells an account of the Guatemalan Civil War, which took place from 1960 to 1996, although the ethnography itself focuses on a major period from 1970 to 1986. In order to understand the Civil War, one needs to know the ethnicity of the people in Guatemala. 80% of the population is made up of an indigenous Maya group, while the remainder are Ladino, which are descendants of Europeans or mixed-blood Maya and Spanish people. Although making up a majority, the Maya people were strongly persecuted, not only in daily life, but also through governmental legislation with the introduction of the Vagrancy Law, an institutionalized method of slavery that stated if you had not worked a mandatory number of days, you would be imprisoned or assigned work. A vagrant can be associated with someone who is without a job and is not pursuing work, but to the Guatemalan government, there were anyone who was not employed, did not work on a plantation, or farm a specified amount of land, completely dismissing lifestyles that did not follow the capitalist ideology. By being forced to work on plantations called fincas, owned by rich Ladinos, or volunteering, or forced under military supervision, on public works projects for the government, the Maya people were never able to create settlement of their own. If a commoner's work quota was not reached, they would be forcefully relocated to a Ladino-owned plantation, making no money off of six months of continuous, backbreaking labor and risking their lives for the profit of the landowners. Ninety percent of agricultural land was privately owned by a medium to large size operator or corporation, so there was little opportunity for the Maya people to work community-owned land for their benefit. In addition, deforested land throughout Guatemala resulted in erosion, leaching minerals from the soil and rendering that land unusable for agriculture, causing the desire for usable land to increase exponentially. Many of the fincas were located across the country, giving the workers no choice but to travel long distances with their own money just to find employment. Once they had arrived at their destination, they were met with abhorrent housing consisting of 20 by 12 foot thatched roof huts with straw floors, which were then divided into two to three rooms. The Maya people were persecuted from the day they were born. Even the teachers in schools did not care for their indigenous students' education. Miguel Reyes, a Quiche Maya native, was quoted as remembering, there was only one teacher, and she attended more to her husband than to her students, because this guy was a nonstop chain smoker. Her job was to roll cigarettes for her husband, so she would leave us there. She would only open the school for us and then command, children, study. After hundreds of years of conquest and servitude, the indigenous people of Guatemala had enough. In 1960, the Guatemalan government reported unprecedented economic growth in the country, while their taxation and government social standing ranked last in the entirety of Central America. To combat this oppression, the people began to form cooperatives under the influence of Catholic priests. 
created to support the community and offer a system of local government to the people who had been denied infrastructure and education for their whole lives. The main goal of these cooperatives was to obtain land for the indigenous people, land that they could work and transform to create ideal and safe spaces to live. Co-ops taught essential skills such as accounting or sanitation, anything that would raise the ability of a peasant living off of their own resources. They left the Maya highlands that had been their home for generations and migrated to a new land of opportunity, the tropical forest, an unconquered and hostile landscape that served only that served as the only freedom from an impressive government. Within this forest, the village of Santa Maria Zeja was formed, the focal point of the ethnography and a perfect example of the injustices that the indigenous people faced in the country. The village included amenities and public projects built by the villagers, including landing strips, bridges, a school, clinic, a community room, chapel, and volunteer living quarters, among many others. Within the first year of Santa Maria Zeja's founding, 116 families had moved to live there. In just five years, the population in the region rose from 5 to 10,000, and by 12 years had increased to 45,000 people. Maya people were moving to the forest in large numbers to build and manage a life of their own. In their farm plots, villagers grew the essential Mesoamerican crops corn, beans, and rice. But after mastering the land, they began to grow oranges, bananas, pineapple, tangerine, and yucca in small house plots. In the unfavorable conditions of the jungle, the Maya settlers found a paradise, a land virtually untouched that they could finally live in peace. Unfortunately, for those in power, this was the last thing that could happen. The Guatemalan agency, INTA, tasked with giving land permits to colonizers, delayed in handing out the permits, and in some cases gave the same parcel of land to several different people. The INTA went so far as to inform the settlers that even though some had provisional titles, no one would receive permanent documents for 20 years or so. The land issues meant that the native people could never fully own their land, as the government could come in at any time and take it away due to a lack of paperwork or the deed would be in the country's name. By 1976, Guatemala was fully under vicious military rule. The jungle became a haven for guerrillas, soldiers and refugees who resisted the totalitarian regime that threatened the indigenous way of life. Father Luis, a priest in the region, is quoted as saying, Some say the army came because the guerrillas came. In fact, the army came before the guerrillas because they had that ambition, because they realized these were rich lands. Then the guerrillas came and the military presence increased leading to the total militarization of the region. I find that this quote perfectly sums up the atmosphere of militarized Guatemala throughout the late 20th century. The military saw the success of the native people and decided to take the land for themselves. The guerrillas were just an underfunded nuisance that hindered their conquest of the land. The guerrillas also gave the army the reason to displace and destroy native communities. The military stopped at nothing to gain information on guerrilla locations of their camps and supply stores. They kidnapped, tortured, disappeared, and killed hundreds of thousands to as many as millions of people in what the Human Rights Watch and many others refer to as cultural genocide. The military believed that every Maya native was working with guerrilla agencies, such as the EGP, known as the Guerrilla Army of the Poor, meaning that no one was safe from their terror and tyranny. During the worst years of the war, from 1981 to 1983, around 500,000 to 1.5 million people were displaced from their homes. The military destroyed entire villages, including Santa Maria Zeja, 
which was then rebuilt under military control according to standards that did not suit the Maya way of life. The homes and buildings were built as close to each other as possible, surrounded by military tents to keep the people under close observation at all times. Conversation was monitored, and anyone could have been an informant for the army. The rebuilt village had a surge of new immigrants. Previous inhabitants were called Antiguos, and they made up only 40% of the population. The newcomers, called Nuevos, made up the remaining 60% and spanned five different ethnic groups, each speaking their own language. During this period of so-called reunification, the REMHI report estimates that nearly half a million Mayas wound up in militarized rural communities based on an exorbitant level of social control. The army wanted to control the population any way they could, and by grouping together people from different ethnic groups, there's less of a chance that the villagers would rally together and fight for a common cause. To find any refugees or guerrillas hiding in the forest, the army also created civil patrols that were made up of the villagers themselves. They were forced to work 24-hour shifts patrolling the village and surrounding areas. And although Nuevos may have done this more willingly, the Antiguos were more reluctant. Antiguos made noise crashing through the jungle, alerting anyone who may have been hiding there. On several occasions, the patrols came across camps that appeared to have been recently abandoned, with fires still burning and tools left strewn about. The author Beatrice Mann does an excellent job of giving an account of the Guatemalan Civil War through interviews with those who participated and accounts on specific events. There are moments in her writing where I can feel the horror and reality that is the violence of wartime conflict, and several times I've had to step away from the reading to take a break. Manns does not pull any punches when she discusses both sides of the story and how no one was safe from the atrocities committed by the military and guerrilla forces. The ethnography builds up a history that leads to the systematic genocide of the Guatemalan native Maya population, who were killed, kidnapped, disappeared, and displaced throughout the military's occupation of the country. I believe that this book has been a good choice for me because it shows human perseverance in the face of ultimate conflict. Even in the worst of times, people find a way to come together and create a sense of unity after an awful event. February 15th, a group of men went to survey what was happening and to try to recover some badly needed food and, if possible, to untie pigs and give water to the animals. Several silently climbed a small hill where they could view the center of the village. They left their families hidden in several groups in the dense foliage close to a trail that led to Santa Maria Dolores in the southern path of the village near the Ceja River. Unexpectedly, the men on the hill saw an army patrol heading south down a path towards the Zeha River in the direction of their family's hiding places. A helicopter was also flying overhead. Crouching in fear in the jungle undergrowth, trembling mothers had stuffed rags into the mouths of their infants so they would not cry. As the last soldier passed, a small dog barked. The column immediately halted and turned back to investigate. They soon located a pregnant woman, her infant, and two boys left in her care. Meanwhile, Pedro Lux and his son Angel Lux ran to warn their family that an armed column was on the way. Running desperately through the forest, Angel, the little boy, was nonetheless too late. He heard the soldiers yell something at the terrified women and children, indicating without doubt that the troops knew that they had run across a group of unarmed civilians. And then he listened in shock as the soldiers emptied their weapons into the cowering group. As the bleeding bodies lay on the ground, the soldier threw a grenade to finalize the carnage. The unit then began examining the area more thoroughly, quickly locating a second group of eight children 
their pregnant mother, and a grandmother. The soldiers moved against them with indescribable fury, firing their weapons at point-blank range. The soldiers ripped open the pregnant woman's stomach and tore out her unborn baby. A little girl who had not been killed in the fusillade of bullets was tossed in the air and bayoneted. A young boy, Edwin Kinnale, managed to run and hide behind a fallen tree trunk, becoming the only witness to a bloodletting that wiped out his world. I remembered what we had been told to do if the army came, he later said. There was a lot of noise, smoke, everyone was screaming. My sisters, he recalled tearfully. I continued running any way I could. My goal was to get out of there. I was not afraid. When I was running, I turned my head and saw one of my sisters was following me. I continued running. I turned my head again. My sister was no longer there. I stopped and I hid behind a fallen tree trunk. He had jumped into thick, sharp brush that was cutting his skin. From there, he observed the carnage. The army killed them all. Perhaps they did not notice when I fled. I do not understand why. I saw it all. I saw it well. My baby sister was crying. The soldier took out a knife and opened my little sister's stomach and threw everything out on the ground. My sister no longer cried. Finally, the soldiers left after looking for anything of value on the bodies. Then I only heard that no one was speaking. No one was making any noise. I came out from under the tree trunk. They were all dead, he recalled, and then described the scene. One sister had no head. I don't know. They burst her head with an automatic fire. They were all lying around like a wheel. I was around them. My mother had been shot near the nose, below the eye. My brother, who had said he would rather be dead than be caught by the military, well, he was dead. My sister, the one who was following me, she had a hole in the back. He then reflected, now I think perhaps she covered me. It is likely that when they fired at her, those bullets did not hit me. I think she gave her life for me. Thank you.